Well, as you take your seat, uh, we continue in our series on gospel worship. It is likely we will take a break after this particular sermon. But we are eight sermons in now in our series on gospel worship, and it's called that because this is about worship in the gospel era, in the era of good news after the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so having considered last time the content of sung praise, this time we will consider what will accompany the Psalms, which we see will be the human voice. In some ways, this seems controversial, but as you'll see in church history, it isn't until recently that there was any controversy on this point. But ultimately, it is the Bible that must speak. So let us hear from the Bible this day and not even history. Our primary texts are from 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 29, as well as Hebrews 13, verse 15. So let's start with 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 29. Please now give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word, 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 29. These are the inspired and infallible words of God. Give them your attention. And he, that is Hezekiah, set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Amen. May God bless thus far the reading of his holy word. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 13, if you would as well. And we'll read verse 15. Consider the context again a book that says, don't return to the temple system. Hebrews 13, verse 15. These are the words of God once again. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Amen. May God bless thus far the reading of his word. Let us pray for the preaching of it now. Our Father and our God, our concern, Lord, today is that you would be served in worship. Oh, Lord, to that end, we pray that you would, do, you would do wonderful things in the preaching of the word, things that the man behind the pulpit cannot do, but only the Spirit of the Lord, which plucks our heartstrings, can do. Oh, Lord, we wish to be the kind of worshipers that you are seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth, not in shadows and in types. To that end, Lord, would you enable your servant who now preaches to preach faithfully, 
that he would preach the whole counsel of God and make it known to these, your dear people here. Father, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would rest on the preacher, that the Spirit of Christ would show forth Christ and not the man behind the pulpit. And we pray that the Spirit of Christ would rest and enable all hearts here, rest on and enable all hearts here to give glory to God in the preaching of the word as it is heard by them. O Lord, to that end, we pray that you would help us behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, for we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, throughout our series on worship, our goal has not been to defend a tradition, but instead to hallow the Lord, to consider him holy, to give him what he is after in worship. For we remember in the first sermon, our worship is our service to God. And what has he said? Do not add to my worship or take away from it. Do what I say. And he said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Leviticus 10 verse 2. That's in the context of worship. And so as we seek to serve the Lord, we must defend every practice from God's own word, lest we offer strange fire which he commanded us not. We must know what we do in worship and why we do it. It must not be to suit our preferences, friends, but instead we must do everything because God himself wants it. And this is the duty of every church And this is the duty of every worshiper as well. Do you, the child of God, know why you do what you do in worship? You must ever press for reformation according to the word of God, especially in two primary areas, friends, worship and the gospel. In these two primary areas, you must Have a concern to reform yourself. Today, we see that in the worship of God in the gospel era, after the final and perfect sacrifice of the Lord, our praise is to be a cappella. That is, without musical instruments accompanying our heartfelt and spirit-filled praises, we are to instead pluck the heartstrings, friends, with the great joy of the Holy Ghost in us. Now you might know this, several of you do, I know, that the word a cappella itself, right, is Italian. And what does it mean? In the manner of the church or the chapel, in chapel style. So boys and girls, you think about this. When even a secular musician says, I am singing a cappella, What they are saying is, I am singing like the church sings. That word comes from a time when society saw the worship of the church and they said they praise without instruments. And so to sing a cappella is to sing the way the church sings. You're going to see that in the last part of the sermon with the historical survey. But like I said, we must derive our practice from the word of God, not even from history and lexicons, but scripture. And that's our task today, 
to show that a cappella worship is the manner of worship of the church prescribed by God in the gospel era. And I also want to remind us, because sometimes we can forget this, or maybe I don't do a good enough job of reminding you often, but this is a series about the worship of God. We're not saying that instruments are not allowed outside of the worship of God. As many of you know, my own children play musical instruments. And in the same way, you can sing non-psalms outside of worship. And you can play instruments outside of worship too. This series is about the glory of God in worship, just as a reminder. So with that, our time is divided into the three headings on your bulletin. First is a survey of Old Testament a survey and theology of Old Testament instrumental worship. And second is a survey and theology of New Testament a cappella worship. And third is really sort of the icing on the cake, which is a historical survey of a cappella worship and how unified the church was on this point. So, first, Old Testament instrumental worship. And what we want to do in this first heading is to see the purpose of the instruments in the Old Testament. For it is obvious that the Old Testament saints praised with instruments. Many of our psalms speak of it. We just sung of instruments in our last psalm. And as psalm singers, you're going to be asked a very good question. Why do you sing of instruments but not use them? You must know why. Again, questions are not a bad thing. We must have answers for them. Friends, and we have good answers. Well, we have to go back to the third sermon in the series and the regulative principle of worship. And it is that principle that answers why. You remember the principle comes out of the word of God, out of Deuteronomy 12, 32, when God said concerning worship, what things soever I command you observe to do it. And here is the important part, really. Thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. So we are to do what God prescribes only, but also remember this, precisely as he has prescribed it. We are to add nothing to it, and we are to remove nothing from it. What he commands is required exactly as is. All else is forbidden to us. Do you remember why this principle is given to us? It's simple. Anthropology. Sinners are exceedingly sinful. Our Bible, friends, would be millions of times larger if God had to prohibit everything sinful man could come up with in worship. He'd have to prohibit plays and puppets and parachutes and everything else we in our absurdity throw into the worship of God. And so with efficiency, he says, if I have commanded it, you do it. You're not to take away from it. And if I have not commanded it, it is forbidden to you. A very simple principle, very efficient, very easy to follow. And it is safe for in it, you do not offer strange fire to the Lord. That is the regular principle. That means, friends, the precision of it is that if instruments were part of the Old Testament ceremonial law, They must be eliminated when Old Testament ceremonies are eliminated. You see, in other words, you cannot call on the regulative principle by saying we can use instruments in the New Testament 
if their prescription was peculiar to Old Testament ceremonies. Otherwise, think of it, we'd be circumcising every male child here. But circumcision is gone because the ceremonies are gone. And so if the instruments are tied, this is the thing, if they're tied to Old Testament ceremonies, they must go away as the veil was torn in the temple. Otherwise, we don't uphold God's principle of worship. We violate it instead. And as I've alluded to with circumcision, we would run afoul of the Judaizing Galatian heresy by adding back in the temple system. God forbid. So let us consider the Old Testament instruments, their prescription, and what they portended. And what you notice when you survey the Bible is you notice from Adam to Moses, the Bible records no instruments in the worship of God. Uh, That's an argument of silence, yes, but the silence is rather deafening because instruments outside of worship are mentioned very quickly in the Bible. Uh, I know that a lot of our boys and girls know these kinds of things, these facts, which are great. In Genesis 4, Jubal, right, was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ the father of those who make uh, of, of musical instruments. But you see, no instruments are shown as being part of the worship of God. You don't hear of Job or Abraham or the other patriarchs using them in worship. Okay, that's one data point. It tells you instruments are not required in worship. But at the time of Moses and the Mosaic law, we find the first prescription for them in worship in Numbers 10, verse 10. And listen to how particular their institution was. Also in the day of your gladness and in your solemn days and in the beginning of your months, ye shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. Did you see or did you hear that? Both the instrument was particular, the trumpets, and their usage was highly regulated. What was their use? To be blown over the burnt offerings and sacrifices. They're meant to be a pointer to draw your attention to the animal sacrifices. And it was only to be done then, see how particular God is, and in that manner, unless you forget it, He said, I am the Lord your God. This is my institution. Do it only in this way. And you notice this. As per the regulative principle, instruments do not come in until God said, bring them in. And bring in these particular instruments. Not just bring in instruments, these trumpets. And use them in this particular way for the sacrifices. Well, with David... Then, so we're in Moses. Now with David, the expansion of instruments came and we find more commands concerning their use. You'll find that only one particular class of men can use them, Levites and priests. What does that tell you? They are again connected to the ceremonial system. Due to the limited time we have tonight, I'm not going to trace the entirety of all that has happened under David. But thankfully, the Lord has summarized the doctrine of Old Testament instruments 
in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, which was our first text. So turn there, if you would, to verse 25. And as you turn there, in this time, this is when Hezekiah, the Old Testament, great Old Testament reformer, restored the worship of God according to the commandment of God. Hezekiah knew the regulative principle of worship, and he knew that the people had gone far, far, far afield from what God wanted. He knew what Jesus would have said of all those who do not search the Scripture for the commandments of God and worship. And what, boys and girls, did Jesus say about worship? Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Mark 7, 7 through 8. Do you see what's natural to our heart? We have traditions. And we put aside the commandments of God in worship for our tradition and for what we want to teach about worship. But what did Hezekiah do? He reformed worship according to the commandments of God. He did that diligent work, thankfully, and it keeps us from having to do an intensive survey tonight of the Old Testament. (laughs) In a lot of ways, you can praise the Lord that God has made it easy on us in a single text to summarize Old Testament worship. So consider in verse 25 again. He, Hezekiah, set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to what? The commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet, for so was what? The commandment of the Lord by his prophets. Everything Hezekiah does here, friends, is according to the commandment of the Lord. Again, who is responsible for playing instruments? Levites and priests. Listen to verse 26. The Levites stood with the instruments of David. Note whose instruments they are. David the prophets. And the priests with the trumpets. Again, the priesthood, particular instruments, through and through, instruments in worship, demonstrate a function of sacrifice. Priests and Levites appointed in their priestly role to play them over sacrifices. This is going to become more clear. Look at verse 27. Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. Okay, again, particular instruments ordained by David, not just anything, not guitars and violins, but particular instruments ordained by David. And do you see how, just as in Numbers 10, when instruments came into worship the first time, that they are again offered and connected with the sacrifice? When the offering began, the trumpets and the instruments began. And priests played these particular instruments only during the sacrifice. Look at verse 28. This continued until the burnt offering was finished. You see that? Until it was finished. Boys and girls, that word finished. Should it not remind you of our Savior's final words on the cross? It is finished. Bloody sacrifices are now over. Redemption has been accomplished. 
With his words and work, it is finished. Our Savior forever silenced instruments in worship. Boys and girls, do you know what the animal sacrifices portended? They pointed us forward, didn't they? To the forgiveness of our sins that we would receive in Jesus Christ. We began our series on Hebrews so that we would get this point. That we would not return to shadows of the covenant. Temples, priests, sacrifices, old ceremonies. When the better thing is now here. Jesus Christ. All those things in the ceremonial laws were tutors to point us to him. The instruments blasting to the people. When the sacrifice starts, the instruments blasting to the people. You must, must pay attention to this. This is what you need. You need the forgiveness of your sins. If you are to be saved, pay attention. This is what you need. You need forgiveness. And the price... The death of an innocent victim in your place. This is the gospel, friends. That is why there is so much joy when the instruments played. My sins being placed on another. A substitute for myself. That I am not liable to the pains of hell. But another has taken it upon himself. So of course there's joy when the instruments played. Consider Psalm 81. Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. They made a joyful shout when the instrument played, not because of the sound of the instrument, but because they pointed them to the blood They made them see the forgiveness of sin, a foreshadowing that in time all who have faith will be justified by Christ's blood, Romans 5.9. It was that joy that was meant to be stirred up in the worshiper, and that prefigures the joy of the Holy Ghost that those in the kingdom of heaven have, that all my sins are forgiven not by my works, as we saw this morning with the paralytic, but by grace through faith. That's what it is. When another dies in your place, it is grace. By grace through faith, I am justified through the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Christ, the Lamb of God, has finished the work of salvation on my behalf and given to me as a free gift to those who have faith. The gospel was being prefigured in those sacrifices. And um, I've spoken about this before. The church has long recognized this by calling the preaching of the gospel what? We've talked about this before. The gospel trumpet. The gospel trumpet. And it's the gospel trumpet, the preaching of the word, that now points us to the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For what does the gospel trumpet preach? We preach Christ crucified. If there is a trumpet in worship tonight, friends, it is the voice of the minister of God. What did Isaiah prophesy in Isaiah 58? We'll get to it sometime from now. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression. The voice of the minister must preach, how much more shall the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 The trumpet that now blasts is that you will be saved from all your transgressions if you would trust in the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the trumpet, friends. And you must trust in Christ as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, even yours, if you have faith in him. And so, without having to, because of those two texts are so brilliant, having to continue to survey the Old Testament, as Christ has come, every trapping of animal sacrifices is ended. Everything associated with them is gone. And with that, then, with that in view, we'll consider that a little bit more in our next heading. Let's consider that New Testament a cappella worship. A key text for you to consider when it comes to sacrifices is Hebrews 10, 4 through 9. And if you'd like, you can turn there. I'm going to read it for you regardless. Hebrews 10, 4 through 9. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, that is Jesus, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And when above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Those bulls and goats, friends, that were sacrificed with instruments playing over them, they never, ever took away any sins. But those who came to them by faith, of course, had the redemption of Christ applied to them. We can talk about that in the book of Hebrews later on. But they pointed us. They pointed us to Jesus Christ coming. And when Jesus came to do God's will and was sacrificed, he took away the first, that's that last verse, verse 9, he took away the first, the ordinances of sacrifice, that he might establish the second, meaning the new covenant and its gospel. But all of that, the instruments, the temple system, all of it, the old ordinances are taken away with sacrifice. That is what is most repugnant in a lot of ways about Roman Catholicism. It looks to the temple these days to establish its worship, the sacrificing of Christ in the Mass, her priesthood, trying to recreate the Levitical priesthood, her incense, her instruments, her ceremonial cleansings, ones after another, and so forth. But none of those things are to be done anymore. Because the temple and her priests and her sacrifices are all gone. Because he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. To use any of those old ordinances, mark this well, friends, really is to deny the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That Christ has come and all of that is gone now. When he said it is finished and that veil was torn The priesthood was taken away as our high priest, 
Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens, and all the trappings of the temple and animal sacrifices were abolished. That is the argument we are seeing in the book of Hebrews. Do not return. Don't go back to the temple. Don't go back to the tabernacle. Not when you have the true high priest with us now. And you, beloved, are to revel in the more spiritual and direct access you have to God through Jesus Christ in New Testament worship. You are not to seek to restore the glory veil of the Old Testament temple with musicians obscuring Christ to you, with them taking the place of heartfelt melody in your own heart, But instead, you are called to worship in spirit and in truth. This is spiritual and not carnal worship we are after, or rather God is after. The root of our folly is in both the gospel and in worship that we try to rebuild the temple. Really, every heresy in many ways is a restoration of the temple which is gone. But what did Jesus say about the true worshiper? The hour cometh, listen to this and consider the temple. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. What does that mean? Other than the temple and its sacrifices and all the trappings of it would soon be over. After the words, it is finished, rung out at Calvary. You know, as we consider the temple, I want us to consider what stood side by side with the temple, which is the synagogues. You know, the Jews at the time of the temple understood the purpose of instruments. The synagogues, remember, did not have sacrifice. Sacrifice was only for the temple. Uh, the, in, in, actually, the regular place of worship was the synagogue. You would go to the temple on the feast days, Right? So the ordinary place, Sabbath after Sabbath, was the synagogue. And you know what about the synagogues? Never had instruments. Never had instruments. The Jews understood instruments were connected with sacrifice. The worshipers in synagogues only sang a cappella, and no scholar disputes that. For nothing else, this is another data point that shows our interpretation of instruments connected to the temple is correct. And where we go wrong is, as I said, patterning our worship on the temple and not the synagogue. That's how Rome goes terribly wrong. But the Bible itself shows you that our worship is built on synagogue worship. For instance, when James 2.2 says, For if there come unto your assembly, the word for assembly he uses is synagogue, showing that we continue in the synagogue pattern. That's why Christ and his apostles were so often in the synagogues. But with that data point, showing us the temple was the place of instruments alone, consider then, now as we go back to the regulative principle of worship and principles of worship, that as per God's commandment to worship in his prescribed manner, in order for instruments to come into the New Testament age, if they were associated only with sacrifice, Instruments must be reinstated by direct command in some way in our New Testament. If 
they're tied to the sacrifices and that system is no more, that we that they might continue in our worship in a different manner, instruments that is, they have to have another command in the New Testament. For instance, the singing of psalms, you know they're not connected to the sacrificial system at all. Because why? They continue in the New Testament, don't they? Showing us they were not tied to the sacrifices. He commands psalms in the New Testament. We've seen it. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, James 5.13, and so on. But are there any equivalent commandments to use instruments in the New Testament? Not one. Not one. Instead, this is where, this is what it means to worship in spirit and truth, brethren. It is the heart of the worshiper and their voice that is sought after by God. It's telling, brethren, that the very book that says the temple is finished, don't go back. Sacrifices taken away gives you the directive to sing praise to God. Hebrews 13, verse 15, which we read, by him, Jesus, let us offer the sacrifice. You see the different now, this sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. What is the sacrifice of praise in the book of Hebrews that says, don't go back to the temple. The fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips. And of course, of course then, you think about it in the book of Hebrews, is Paul ever going to tell the Hebrews, take up harp, cymbals, and trumpets? No. Because the temple, he says, is gone. And the sole directive is the fruit of our lips. And elsewhere, the apostle taught in Ephesians 5.19, we've considered it a few times now, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, the melody of praise is to be in your heart. The Greek there has this sense to pluck the strings of your heart. The external the external instrumentation, those harps, is meant to be moved inwardly into the heart. That's New Testament worship, friends. It puts away everything that stands between you and God through Jesus Christ, your mediator, so that you give heartfelt praise, that the word of the Lord quickens your heart. This is New Testament age. There is no glory veil. There is no priesthood obscuring Christ and God. All is through Jesus Christ and is spiritually. No longer lifeless instruments priests played, but the heart is to be played, that your heart would be the instrument of joy as you recognize Christ crucified for sinners. No external musicians, but in the heart. And it's fascinating to me to see how the musicians were part of the priesthood. For it seems to me, friends, in our churches, we do erect a new class of church officer. Not found in the New Testament, the worship leader and their worship ensemble. What are we doing, friends, when we do it? What are we doing? We are saying we cannot worship God without priests. We must have a class of officer that will enable us to worship God They will mediate our worship by playing instruments. (laughs) 
So many churches, friends, are in a panic if they do not have musicians. They cannot even begin a new church. Think on these things. Think about what they signify. Man loves priests instead of Christ the high priest. We create priests all the time. All the time. One final data point concerning the New Testament's lack of instruments. When Paul mentions instruments, he always seems to mention them disparagingly. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, clanging gongs and cymbals. And listen to his comments in 1 Corinthians 14. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? What does he call musical instruments? Things without life. Can something without life praise God? No. These are things that God doesn't want in his worship. What is he after always? He is after your heart, friends. Now, an objection comes because the only place in the New Testament you will find instruments is in the Revelation. (laughs) And first, actually, that should be a huge red flag for us, shouldn't it, friends? A huge red flag if you know how to interpret the Bible. Uh, They say instruments in the New Testament in the Revelation. So look, you can use them in the church. But friends, I'm going to make the case that instruments are in the Revelation, and so that favors a cappella worship today on earth. Why? Because the Revelation is, if nothing else, highly symbolic. You find in it a temple. You find a tabernacle. You find candlesticks, you find incense, and even the lamb slain. It is not a book to base our worship as Rome and even the Eastern Orthodox do, but it is rather symbolic, and it shows you how to interpret Old Testament um, prophecy and typology. It's a genre by itself called apocalyptic, along with Ezekiel and some others, and it is to be interpreted with great, great care. These are the saints in heaven, glorified, friends. We're talking about the worship of church on earth. Otherwise, if you follow the book of the Revelation for your worship, you're going to find Rome's reinstated priesthood in it in one hand, or attack helicopters as dispensationalists do on the other. It is very, very important to interpret that book correctly. And you cannot use a book about last things to talk about things in the current age outside of those things that are historicist in nature. Well, anyway, New Testament worship, I had to deal with that briefly, and our time is brief. New Testament worship, then, continues the practice of the synagogue without um, sacrifice. A cappella, the fruit of our lips, the melody of our heart, not the offering of things without life, with a full and final view to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The joy of seeing those animals slain for sin is moved inwardly into the heart, friends. You know, when Paul preached to the Galatians, when they were seeking to return to the ceremonial law, he said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Galatians 3 verse 1. Your eyes and your heart are to be set on Jesus Christ, evidently set forth as crucified among you. And through the gospel trumpet being preached, 
You consider in how many of the apostles' writings, brethren, he constantly exhort you, don't go back to the shadows of the Old Testament. The Corinthian letter has, letters have it. The uh, Galatian letter has it. The book to the Hebrews has it. This is a pull on our heart. It has often plagued God's people. It has overtaken Rome and the Eastern Orthodox. It has infiltrated into Protestantism and Lutheranism and Anglicanism. And we must not let it infiltrate us as well. Well, I think that that serves as a fitting transition to our last heading, which is a historical survey, which really shocks a lot of people. A historical survey of a cappella worship. Well, I hope... Even though it was brief, you have seen the basis of a cappella praise, that it is based on the principles of interpretation of the Bible and principles of worship, Scripture interpreting Scripture. But another data point for your consideration, which really buttresses the argument, is the history of the church. And in that, let me preface this with another point I made last time. We are at a very low point in church history. A very low point in church history. We really are. Please, brethren, do not look at our time as normative. Do not consider the practices of churches today to evaluate any particular doctrine without searching the word. Why do I say that? Just this past week, a poll of born-again or professing born-again believers said that 70% of them believe that there are other ways to God besides Jesus Christ. If today's church, friends, cannot even get the very basics, the very fundamentals of the gospel right, I would not have implicit faith that any of our practices are based on the Bible. In our time, few churches preach the gospel. Few churches treat the word as it ought to be treated. Few churches have searched the scriptures when it comes to worship. Instead, what do they do? They do what they do by tradition, whether a hundred years old or five. This is a low point in church history. The explosion of Pentecostalism in a lot of ways proves it. Because we are often seeking that which is not in the word. But even our reformed churches are weak. You think about this, in many of our churches that rejected images of Christ, now they are embraced. Concupiscence, the desire for sin being sinful, taught by the Bible and taught by our standards, now is being rejected by many in the PCA. Do not look around and base your theology by what you see, friends. Walk by faith. Be Bereans. Search the word constantly. Yes, you are going to be considered weird to some brethren, but you also probably faced it on the day the Lord opened your eyes to make you see the doctrines of grace and what we call Calvinism and God's sovereignty. You you are weird in society's eyes when you stand for biblical marriage and the proper roles for each sex. That said then, as we consider where we are in church history, let's consider the testimony of church history against instruments. It begins with the synagogue, as I mentioned. No instruments were found in them. But afterward, the church fathers were uniform in their rejection of instruments in worship. Their testimony was, Christians do not use instruments in the worship of God. Clement, Athanasius, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Augustine, and many, many more all spoke against instruments. Just a couple of quotes. Clement, 2nd century. 
There is one instrument of peace, the word of, uh, alone by which we honor God, which is what we employ. We no longer employ the ancient psalter and trumpet and timbrel and flute. Augustine, who you know well, commenting on the instruments of Psalm 150, he said, you, that is God's saints, are trumpet, psaltery, harp, timbrel, choir, strings, and organ, symbols of jubilation, sounding well because sounding harmony. All these are you. Let not that which is vile, not that which is transitory, speaking of the temple system, not that which is ludicrous be thought here. Church councils ruled the same way as the fathers taught. The Council of Laodicea in the 4th century forbade instruments in worship. The Council of Carthage in the 5th century stated, On the Lord's day, let all instruments of music be silenced. As late as the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, Rome herself, resisted instruments. In his Summa, Rome's greatest doctor wrote concerning Psalm 32, But the church does not make use of musical instruments such as harps and psalteries in the divine praises. Listen to this and see how it connects with the biblical data. For fear of seeming to imitate the Jews. Aquinas had a concern to not be Judaizing as in Galatia and in the Hebrews. Sad to say, Rome stopped listening to her good doctor on this, and she declined terribly. In the 14th and 15th centuries, she added organs to public worship. But think about this then. For 1,400 out of 2,000 years of church history after Christ's advent, the church valiantly resisted instruments in public worship. Even to this day, the Eastern Orthodox do not use them. And they even patterned their worship on the revelation, which should tell you something. With the decline of Rome then, and the gospel being obscured, it was up to the reformers to remove instruments when Rome brought them in. And so they did. When they reformed worship, the reformers spoke up against instruments. Consider the great diversity of churchmen from many traditions that spoke against them. And these names, John Calvin, commenting on Psalm 71.22, said, to sing the praises of God upon the harp and psaltery, unquestionably formed a part of the training of the law, see the allusion to Galatians, and of the service of God under the dispensation of shadows and figures, but they are not now to be used in public thanksgiving. Presbyterians, like us, of course, rejected them. The Scottish commissioner to Westminster, George Gillespie, wrote, the Jewish church, not as it was a church, but as it was Jewish, had an eye priest, typifying our high priest, Jesus Christ. As it was Jewish, it had musicians to play upon harps, psaltery, cymbals, and other musical instruments in the temple. Again, tied to the sacrificial system. This really blows a lot of people's minds. But the Baptists, for a long time, were no different. Charles Spurgeon himself rejected instruments. On Psalm 42.4, he wrote, What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, or the blowing off of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. And only Spurgeon could turn a phrase like this. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Recalling Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 that these machines, instruments, 
have no life. It's so interesting. Even the Methodists rejected them. Methodists said in his, that is John Wesley's terse and powerful manner, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. When the Free Methodist Church was organized, they said, Methodists will have congregational singing without instrumental music in all cases. On and on, we could go with a historical survey, but I think this should show us, friends, how diverse it has been in the church to reject musical instruments and see them as for the church under age in the Old Testament. What has happened? Well, one of the things historians note is that among Protestant churches, revivalists like Finney were greatly responsible for popularizing instruments in worship. Why did they use them? As instruments of manipulation. All of what the revivalists did, you know this, was psychological. To do, as we consider the work of the Holy Ghost, to do a counterfeit work of the Holy Ghost, that is, the Holy Ghost's work alone, which is to drive people to Christ. When I was in the video game business, one of my friends was a sound and music man who did a lot of the music for video games, and he did the sound effects as well. He was a skeptic. He called himself an agnostic anyhow. And as I talk about the gospel, I talk about church, and this is before I was in the Reformed Presbyterian, before I was Reformed, he told me straight up, he avoids church services because they are manipulative. At least the ones he went to. He said, I know what they're doing. This is my job. The lights go down. The music plays in a way to pull the heartstring. And he says, it's all manipulation. Atheists, skeptics understand this well, people of God. And the church is irresponsible in trying and sinful in trying to do the work the Holy Ghost does. Of course, we expect it from Finney, but not about those who have a good theology. Counterfeit works of the Holy Spirit. And let me say, throughout this land, many worship leaders, so-called, know exactly what they are doing when they choose certain instrumental music to produce a certain effect. They know exactly what they're doing. They learn this from those phony revivalists like Finney. And unfortunately, sadly, what theologically sound churches did is first they forgot their theology, and then they embraced pragmatism. This is why we're going through a series on worship, lest you think what we do is from tradition. What we do is according to the word of God. But theologically sound churches, seeing the revivalists, said we essentially, and and this is of course being maybe a bit unfair, we want a piece of that action. We want to attract people into our churches. And they said with pragmatism and not with scripture, let us draw masses in the same way. And the degradation of worship and the corruption of it even entered into reformed churches. Again, I'll say it. We're at a low point. 70% of those who claim to be born again say you can get to God without Jesus Christ and through other religions. And maybe because this happened to me recently, it's maybe more pressing on my mind, but, um, you know, recently when I was in South Carolina, I was invited to go out there and preach. I was taken on a tour of several Southern Presbyterian uh, historical churches, and I had the great uh, joy of seeing Gerardo's... uh, 
last church that he planted. It's an ARP now. And, and there's a plaque to Gerardo on, on the entrance. You know, it's kind of small, so it doesn't take up uh, too much of your attention away from the worship of God. But you remember Gerardo, many of you, 19th century, Southern Presbyterian. He taught in Columbia Seminary. His masterpiece, Instruments, Instrumental Music in the Worship of God. Beautiful work. You can get it online. It's wonderfully done. A theological powerhouse that demolishes arguments against instruments, oh, for instruments, rather, in worship. Very thorough. But sad to say, when I visited his church, what caused me grief is a piano now sits in the meeting hall. Even though the plaque dedicated to the man greets you in the entrance. We have degraded friends. At the same time, though, I'm not disgruntled. Jesus Christ will reform his church. More are embracing a cappella exclusive psalmody as such things are rediscovered in the word. At our home mission board, oftentimes in that meeting this week that we had, oftentimes hard to keep track of all those who are crying out for a church plant. Ministers are wanting to come into a cappella exclusive psalmody denominations like ours, uh, local ministers, many other ministers, one in Houston, and bring their congregation in. Why? Because just as Josiah, just as Hezekiah, just as the reformers did, they discovered what the word of God has to say on these things and have put away whatever traditions they have come from. Perhaps we will not live to see many churches reform worship in our lifetime, so be it. But I have no doubt that the time is coming when it will be. The question is for us, will we as a church and as the next generation and a denomination remain faithful in these things? Not just to rest in our doctrine, but embrace it and promote it as it is to the glory of God. And will we, in other areas where we are unfaithful to the Scripture and to Christ, search those things out? This is not not the sermon of the self-righteous, but really that we ourselves might have blinders, not thinking we have arrived, but we would look at every practice and reform and repent ourselves. Well, friends, I want you to consider such things to the glory of God, and I hope this brief survey of the Bible and of history will help you see why the church's worship is a cappella, as in, boys and girls, the manner of the church. And may you yourself, beloved, as you consider Christ as we considered him this morning in Luke 5, always pluck your heartstrings in praise. That's what God is after. Your heart, your heart, always bring forth the fruit of your lips, the sacrifice of praise when you recognize with great joy that even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Praise God for that without harps, but from your heart and with your lips. In other words, be a living instrument unto God in the worship of God. Amen. Please rise for prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for these three words. It is finished. That our salvation is accomplished. Our redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're thankful, Lord, that we no longer make pilgrimages a few times a year to the temple to offer sacrifices. That your worship is not burdensome, but is... uh, is worship 
that can be offered by every nation, tribe, and tongue, whether persecuted as our covenanter forefathers were, where they worshipped in fields, not having to drag organs and pianos around with them, suited for the time of the apostles, where they fled from city to city, and yet could open the word of God and sing your praise with their heart. We thank you for the simplicity of New Testament worship, Lord. Help us not return to shadows, but help us look unto Jesus, the substance. Clear away all the clutter that obscures our Savior from our sight. Help reform your churches, O Lord. Help us to offer our hearts and not our guitars. Help us to proclaim the gospel trumpet and not gratify our flesh. Help the church not do counterfeit works of the Holy Ghost, but instead help the church preach the word with simplicity and clarity and sing the word and read the word that the Holy Ghost may cause faith to come through the word of God and not by carnal manipulation. O Lord, open the eyes of your people. Open the mouths of your people as well that you would have what you desire and that they, your people, would be blessed in turn. For we ask this for Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen.